join me in opening up a Bible to 1 John chapter 4. You know, when you um, go through the various writings um, of the New Testament authors, they, you, you find a couple things. One, that they are unbelievably unified in their theology, um, in the truth that they are proclaiming across the board. But then you also find that each individual author has a greater emphasis on certain themes and kind of becomes known for. There's just certain things you know they're going to emphasize more than the others, right? So, for example, Paul is the apostle of um, justification by faith, right? Kind of a major theme for, for Paul in his letters. Uh, you have Peter, who is considered the apostle of hope. Talks a lot about hope in his letters. And our John, who we've been with now for the last couple months, is often considered the apostle of love. In the ten or so sermons we've had so far in First John, this is going to be the third one that exclusive focus is going to be on the theme, love. And, and there's been a progression, if you've noticed, if you've been with us through this series, progression of John's treatment of love, beginning in chapter 2 when he wrote about love as evidence of our fellowship with God. Chapter 3, he expands a little bit more to write about our adopted sonship from God. And now, chapter 4, this morning, we're going to get the fullest treatment of John's teaching on love. And I think it's not an overstatement to say it's going to be the fullest treatment on the topic of love in the entire Bible. 1 John 4, 7-21, I think is the fullest, deepest teaching on love in the Bible. And the progression that we have seen in this letter has been like a wedding feast. Do you remember that back in the day when you used to go to weddings and stuff? You know, you, you, you would always kind of start with a light salad that gets you just a little bit, gets you started. And then they come out with a pasta dish a few maybe minutes later. And then now we get to the main course. That's kind of what John's teaching is on love. He started with the salad, gave us some pasta. And now this morning, our, we are ready for the main course. Between verse 7, where we'll pick it up today, and the beginning of chapter 5, John's going to write the Greek word agape, which is the word for unconditional love, 30 times. John is the apostle of love. You know, I've been bringing up John's age a lot throughout this series, right? It's not kind of a weird ageism thing that I'm doing, but uh, John is likely in his 70s or his 80s writing this letter. And the reason why I've said it a lot, because it provides I think, valuable insight at various points of the letter, right? He's the last living apostle who walked with Jesus. That's how he started the letter. It's the church's only remaining connection to their Savior's embodied ministry. That John is writing this letter 50 years after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended to heaven. And 50 years later, here's old John writing about the importance of love. And in doing so, John bucks against the age-old trope of the grumpy old man, right? The, the grumpy old man who's just cranky all the time, he's kind of bothered by everything, uh, you know, he's impatient with everyone, why can't everyone just understand how they should be living? Um, that, that, that should really not be true of any Christian, particularly a Christian man, right? Despite what culture might say of the grumpy old man and you can be cranky all you want, that you've earned that, the maturing Christian man who's been pursuing Christ for 50 years should be made evident by the way they love. The mature Christian man grows in love. 
And John here, he's not resentful. He's not bitter. He's full of love for God, for the church. And it's his passion in this letter to convey the importance of love to future generations. And so just like later this week, you're going to have to prepare your bodies for a huge meal on Thursday. So now let us prepare our minds and hearts for a main course of a passage this morning in 1 John. We're going to start in verse 7, and we're going to read up through verse 12 to begin. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. All right, in our full treatment of love, we're going to see three things this morning. Number one, love seen and love shown. Number one, love seen and love shown. For the second time in this letter, John defines something in relation to God's character. Back in chapter 1, you might remember, uh, John said that God is light. And now, God is love. That is significant. It should not be so easily overlooked. John did not just say God is loving or that God shows great love, but rather God is love. God defines love. Love does not define God. It's not just what he does. It is who he is, right? God is love like water is wet. You you cannot separate the two. And, And this love is not just spoken. It is seen. If you were here, I think it was just a couple weeks back for our last sermon on love in 1 John, John said, hey, don't just say you love the world. It's not that hard to say, I love everyone and I love others. He says, don't just say it, show it. Let that love be seen. And so God, being love in his very character, makes his love seen primarily and foundationally through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In this, the love of God was made manifest, right? Was made visible among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You know, that, that, that verse, verse 9 of chapter 4, is one of those verses that if you had a Bible study, you could spend a whole Bible study night just unpacking verse 9. Just talking about verse 9. Love made manifest. Love has been seen. And so let's just break it down. We, we could spend an hour here, but we won't. But let me just show you how you can break down this verse. God sent. Like, just stop there, right? God sent. God's love is the only love that is initiated, not responsive. All the love we possess and show others is a responsive love. God's love is the only love that is a purely an initiated love. God sent. God sent his only son into the world. 
right? It shows the magnitude of God's love. So you have God sent, and God sent his only son. Previously, before this, God sent angels. God raised up and sent out prophets. But when it mattered most, when the stakes were highest, God sent his only son. God sent his only son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. Jesus came, and this was the plan from the beginning. Before the foundations of the world were set, this was God's plan. He came with a mission, not to make mean people nice, not to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. The Bible says that due to sin, all people are spiritually dead, and all means all, right? Regardless of background, regardless of skin color, of socioeconomic status, regardless of religion, no matter if you grew up in a Christian home or an atheist home or a Muslim home, all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all people were not just guilty, again, we were dead, Ephesians 2, we were dead in sin, no spiritual pulse. Dead does not mean dying. Dead means dead. No hope of turning it around ourselves. And where sin and rebellion occurs, justice is required, right? This is an often a question that non-believers struggled with. If God is really loving, couldn't he just overlook sin? Couldn't he just wave a magic wand or something and just say, boom, forgiven, we're good? Can't God just do that? And the reason is no, and it's the same reason why a judge in this world would not look at a reckless criminal and just say, you know what, don't worry about it. It, That would not be loving. That would not be just. It would certainly not be loving against the person who that criminal committed a crime against. But out of his mercy, his initiating love and grace... God sent his only son so that we may live. All right, let's say you got that down, and you might ask, okay, I understand why God would do that, but how would God do that? It's a great question, and John anticipates it. Verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God does something that we could never do for ourselves. That's at the heart of the gospel. God does something that we can never do ourselves. He desires salvation for his people, but there's nothing that sinners can do to earn his forgiveness. Our only hope is grace. Our only hope is grace, is the initiating love of God who sends his only son to pay the price for our sin. For when, when Jesus died on the cross, he became our substitute He didn't just model good behavior or sacrificial living. He became our substitute and was the propitiation. Again, there's that word again. We saw it earlier in the letter, but nobody really talks about propitiation anymore. It's not in our vocabulary. It means the atoning sacrifice. It was the satisfactory payment for our sin. The death of Jesus is where God's holiness, his justice, his grace, and his love all converge. And for those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord will be saved. 
Here's what the gospel is telling us, that, that man should pay the price for sin. But only God could pay the price for sin. So in sending Jesus Christ to take on flesh, fully man and fully God, he is the only person who combines should and could in the history of the world. Which is why Jesus says, no one can come to the Father except through me. That's a loving statement because it's true. And this is the good news. This is the foundational heartbeat of everything we believe and all that we are. The gospel says, I am more sinful than I would have ever dared to believe. And that I am more loved than I ever dared to hope. This is love seen. And through him, we can model love shown. Verse 11, John says, since that's true, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then John says, no one's ever seen God. That might sound confusing at first. I thought John spent the whole first chapter saying he has seen God. Now he's saying no one has seen God. But he means here, in the context of the verse, the Father. No one has seen God, the Father. And the only way for people to see him is through the living Christ. And how can people see the living Christ today when the living Christ is no longer on earth? He is shown and perfected in us. Love seen and love shown. When John says perfected there, he means love has reached its goal in saving us and then being shown through us when we love one another. God's love initiates, and and so our love is in response to his love and is the motivation for everything that we do. That, That God showed his love for you in sacrificing himself. So, church, brothers, sisters, show your love to one another and others by sacrificing yourself. Here's where it gets practical for us, because the the discussion on love, again, can get two up in the clouds. Love one another, it's the banner, yes, nod, and move on. But here's where it comes down to the day-to-day level. Every single day, we decide over and over again, will we focus on ourselves, or will we focus on the glory of God and others? Today, will I be self-centered, or will I be self-sacrificial? It doesn't get more practical than that. And it's not an obligation. It's not an oppor- a burden to be self-sacrificial. It's our joyful opportunity to love others in response to God's love for us. You know, the world says, and sometimes, unfortunately, even professing Christians tend to say, you should love yourself by prioritizing yourself. But God says, love yourself by prioritizing others. And don't just talk about love. You need to talk about it to understand it, but don't stop at talking. We can be so guilty of just talking about love and thinking that's good enough. But love in action all throughout your life. You know, it tends to be, I think, as we grow up, we tend to forget this. Years ago, a group of professionals were doing a study on what love meant, this existential question. What is love? What does it mean? And as part of their study, they got a group of four to eight-year-olds. And they asked them the question, what does love mean? And they were taken aback by the depth of some of their answers compared to the adults. A girl named Chrissy, age six, said, love is when you go out to eat and give someone most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. 
Terry, age four, love is what makes you smile when you're tired. Think about that one tonight when you're laying in bed. Noel, age seven, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and then he wears it every day. I never heard that until Rochelle started buying my shirts. And uh, anyway, Jessica, age seven, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. I think sometimes we get too in the clouds when we talk about love as opposed to seeing interwoven into every aspect of our lives. This is the love of God seen in Christ to us and shown by us to others. Love seen, love shown. Let's keep going. We're going to pick it up at verse 13 and read to verse 16. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. All right, I hope you're still hungry. we got room to go in this main course. Number two, love applied and love abides. Number two, love applied and love abides. Just as we love one another because God loved us, so too we abide in him because he abides in us. So from a theological perspective, these are some of the clearest Trinitarian verses in the Bible. You may know that the word Trinity or Trinitarian are not in the Bible, but it is the word that explains the very biblical triune God. And it's amongst the most important doctrines in the church and in Scripture that there is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And the Godhead has eternally existed in fellowship with one another forever in perfect loving community. And our God did not speak creation into being because he was lonely. Did you learn that as a kid? Like, why did God create the world? Well, because he was lonely and he wanted friends, so he created you. Not true. He was never lonely. He was in perfect community for all of eternity. He did not need us to complete him. He created not out of loneliness, but his loveliness. C.S. Lewis, connecting the dots here with that phrase earlier, God is love, says this, quote, God is love means the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. That creation is an overflow of the triune's God love for one another. God, unified in essence, distinct in persons, three in one. And all three are vital in the work of redemption and saving sinners. Are you ready for taking notes? This is, I think, helpful to think about the Trinity, which can get very confusing. Here's their roles in redemption. The Father sends. The Son accomplishes. The Spirit applies. The Father sends, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. And that's what John is talking about here, that the Holy Spirit is the love of God applied to us. 
that upon placing faith in Jesus Christ, salvation is applied by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit abides in us, which gives us assurance that we can abide in him. And connecting to last week's passage, just a few verses earlier, this assurance that we have is that he who is in you, do you remember? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who is the he? The Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, third person of the Trinity in you upon conversion. And since that love is applied to you through the Spirit, the call on us is to then abide in him. We've talked about abide a couple times in this series already. It's another one of John's words that is unique to his gospel and to his epistles. To abide is to accept truth, to submit to that truth, and then walk in it. Right? It's the word that stands at the crossroads of true belief and right living. Believing and living, abide, stands at the center. It's to allow Christ to be the center of all of our thoughts and actions, to be Christ-centered. You know, interestingly, the Bible never says that non-believers are not capable of truly loving others. Have you ever wondered this? Like, can non-believers really, truly love? The answer is yes. They can, and, and, and disappointingly, many of us have times where we have seen non-believers act more loving in a given situation than professing believers. Anybody else? Non-believers are capable of love because they've been made in the image of God. So they can give love, they can receive love, they can crave love. But non-believers cannot abide. If they do not know Christ, they do not have the Spirit in them. And therefore, worldly love, while real, fails to set its greatest affections on God and be a responsive love for the glory of God. Non-believers can love and many times love well, but they cannot abide. So again, here's my hope in this main course of a meal, is to not stay in the clouds, but get every point down to the ground level. Here's the implicit question that John is giving every believer to consider in their own lives. Are you abiding right now? Love has been applied. Is, are you abiding in him? A way to unpack that question would be, what are the daily rhythms that show a reliance upon him and that he is the center of all we are? How do our daily rhythms reflect that he's the center of our life? So here's an exercise. Let me introduce it today, and I would encourage everyone to do it on your own time. A little homework today. If you were to write out all the categories of your life, all the categories and kind of the identities and the aspects of your life, and then under each category, write this question under it. You ready? How does my faith and love for Jesus Christ inform this area of my life? Let me give you a little picture of what that might look like. Let's say your category is friendship. How does my faith in and love for Jesus Christ inform friendship and friendships in my life? For example, God's love has been initiated to me, that he shows an interest in me. Am I initiating conversations with my friends, or am I only waiting for them to contact me? Do I forgive my friends when they sin against me, when they neglect me in some way, or they actively sin against me, which will happen in every friendship? 
How much do I think about outside the box to bless my friends? Do I remember special days for them and reach out to them on those days? Or do I rely on Facebook to tell me when their birthday is? How about work? We often think about being a Christian at work as only how am I going to share the gospel with my coworkers, which is good and great. But how about how does being a Christian inform the way you work? Working with integrity, really giving it your all every day, not because you necessarily love your job, but that you're working for the glory of God. To be a good worker, to not cut corners, to not be known around your office or in your company as the guy who doesn't give it all, who just gets the bare minimum done. And then, that's when it does become a mission field in your good work that God's gifted you to do, to then be a light for him. In marriage, self-sacrifice, for men to love Christ as Christ loved the church, to act and think in their best interest, not in your best interest, to not fall into the contractual marriage that says, I'll do X if you do Y, and if you stop doing Y, I'm done doing X. How about something like travel? Do you love to travel? How about praying for the places that you're going to on your way there? Doing a little bit of research. What are the obstacles to the gospel bearing fruit in this place I'm going to? And how can I pray for it there while I'm there? Your physical body. What's it mean to take care of your embodied existence through exercise and healthy eating habits? Not cheating on sleep for the sake of production or addiction but seeing sleep as a reminder of our spiritual rest in Christ. This is abiding. This is thinking through abiding in our lives. And everybody's, that's going to look different based on different categories and the way God's gifted you and put you in a different season of life. But abiding is not just reading your Bible and praying. Although those are very foundational for every category. But abiding extends to God's love for us and the presence of the Spirit in us, informing the way I center Christ in every area of my life. Love applied and love abides. All right, let's finish the passage. Hope you got a little room in your stomach left. First John chapter 4, verses 17 to 21. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, cannot, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Last point. Loves confidence and loves compassion. Loves confidence and loves compassion. Up to this point in the passage, John has been providing exhortations for the present day. He's, he's saying, love one another today. Abide in the Spirit today. But now he gives a future application of embodying the love of God. Here's the reason. So that you might be confident on the day of judgment. Again, we see the concept of God's love being perfected. He says that again, meaning being brought to completion, reaching its goal of maturity in our lives. And judgment day, 
is something that every person should seriously consider. This is not a day you want to be vague about. You know, I think about today, especially in the church, I think there's a very lopsided treatment of Judgment Day amongst Christians. Because it seems there is far more talk and concern about when it will happen and the signs of it happening soon rather than a focus on what will actually happen on Judgment Day whenever it comes. Right? So today, if you went online, there is no shortage of books and YouTube videos claiming to chart out the timeline of history in order to tell you it's close or it might even be coming in a certain year or on a certain date. And they start analyzing treaty agreements and this leader and that leader and this global summit. And it connects to Revelation 18 and to Daniel 11. And it's being fulfilled in this election. And there's charts and there's numbers and there's dates and there's signs. And it's an obsession that misses the point. Not to mention it neglects and even defies Scripture's clear teaching that we saw earlier in this letter. We don't know when Judgment Day will be. And we're not supposed to know or to try and figure it out. All we need to know is that it could be any day. And the Bible talks way more about what will happen on Judgment Day than does about when it will come. So rather than ask the question, when is Judgment Day? Ask the question, am I ready for Judgment Day? Every single person that has ever lived will stand before the throne of God. And on that day, one of two things will happen. God will either say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or, I never knew you. Depart from me. And those told, well done, will spend eternity with God and one another in heaven, where there will be no sin and no evil and no brokenness. And those told, I never knew you, will spend eternity apart from God in hell, in a state of constant suffering. And teaching on hell and Judgment Day, it's not very popular. It's often seen as unloving, a scare tactic, the, the fire and brimstone preaching of generations past. But right here, John brings up Judgment Day in the context of a robust teaching on love. Not to mention that the word hell, it's used 12 times in your New Testament. You know who said it 11 of the 12 times and taught about it? Jesus. He came to deliver people from the reality of hell, from eternity apart from God. And so what is the way to be told good and faithful servant? Is it our good works? Is it our moral lifestyle and our strong decision-making no, it will be the works of Jesus Christ imputed to us by faith. Whereas John says, as he is, so also we will be. When God looks at his children on judgment day, he sees Jesus and says, well done. The old hymn, Rock of Ages, written in 1763, has the line, Quote, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only thing we will have on Judgment Day. And by God's grace, it's the only thing we need. 
So for those in Christ who love him and others as a result of his salvation, we can live without fear because John says perfect love casts out fear. It's a popular verse. It's often not spoken in its context of Judgment Day, but that's the context. That Judgment Day doesn't have to be a lingering burden on our backs. It doesn't have to be a scare tactic that we are to fear, but with the Spirit in us, we can live in loving confidence toward God because perfect love casts out fear. It's love's confidence. And then, as we land the plane, love's compassion. Here's the final application. Love's confidence towards God fuels love's compassion toward others. We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, they're a liar. The love of God fuels righteous compassion for, for physical needs in this world, and more importantly, for spiritual needs in Christ. So here we are. We're back to, as we often are in this letter, the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And in this extensive teaching on love in the Bible, it, it motivates our love into action. John says again, don't just talk about it. Don't just say what love is. Show it. Show your love in action, compassion toward others. I think in Matthew 25, when Jesus, in speaking again about Judgment Day, to bring this full circle, he tells his disciples, quote, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then he said that the righteous on that day will ask him, When did we ever do this, Jesus? We don't remember doing that. And Jesus said, the king will say this, truly I say to you, as you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Church, let us love those we can see, for it will show the evidence of our love for a God who we cannot see, especially the least of these. Those all around us who are marginalized right now, oppressed, those in need, and here's our church's drumbeat that we can't do everything. Because no church can do everything. But every church can do something. And so we will do something. Love's compassion, addressing felt needs. And then love's compassion, addressing eternal needs. It not only motivates those to help those oppressed and marginalized, but it motivates us to live on mission and to proclaim the good news of the gospel, which we saw earlier in this passage, to all who are lost, to all who are in spiritual need, that the most compassionate, loving thing you can do in this world is share the good news of Jesus Christ to those who were lost. I want to finish with a story about William Tyndale. Have you heard about William Tyndale? 1 John 4.19 was his favorite verse. We love because he first loved us. At the age of 30, Tyndale was living in England. He was the private tutor of a six-year-old named Harry Walsh. Later in life, Walsh would vividly recount the day that Tyndale announced to him that he will be leaving town and will not be his tutor any longer. In telling him this, Tyndale took out a Greek New Testament, turned to 1 John chapter 4, and began to read to young Harry, translating it into English. He paused at verse 19 and told him that these were the words through which he would enter the kingdom of heaven. We love because he first loved us. Harry asked him at this point, but why do you have to leave? 
And Tyndale told him, quote, because it is time the people have the Bible in their own language. William Tyndale is the one who would go on years later to translate the New Testament into English for the first time in 1534, which was illegal in those early years of the Reformation in England. Then in October 1536, Harry Walsh, all grown up, was told about the news that his childhood tutor, William Tyndale, had been strangled and burned to death for his translation work. Upon, oh man, upon hearing the news, Harry took his wife by the arm, walked across the room, stood in silence before the verse printed on the wall in English. We love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the literal ultimate sacrifice those have paid to get us into a place today where we are beneficiaries of your word written in our language. Lord, we thank you for your son who made salvation possible. We thank you for people across the last 2,000 years of church history, men and women, who have sacrificed themselves to get the word out. We thank you for love's confidence and love's compassion. We thank you that perfect love truly does cast out all fear. And we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in our doing our part to do what we can to show our compassion for others in this world and preparing them for the next. And Father, I pray that it would truly be love that motivates it all because it is perfect love that casts out fear. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.